Let's bow our heads in prayer before we begin. Father, we, we thank you for the great hope that you have given us in life and in death. That we belong to you. That there is an eternity ahead for us with you. We thank you, Father. We thank you tonight for the possibility we have to gather, to look into your word, to be encouraged. We come and ask that you would speak to us tonight. That you would presence yourself among us by your spirit. And cause your word to be applied to our hearts. Father, you must do that. You alone can do that. We come and ask it of you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're thinking about God's purposes in suffering. And just to clarify, I'm trying to stay focused on biblical, hopefully, purposes of God in the midst of suffering. I am not particularly aiming at a comprehensive theology of suffering. So if you want a comprehensive theology of suffering, you would need to go elsewhere. I'm not also I'm not aiming at focusing on how we ought to respond to suffering. Now, we have talked some about, spoken about ways we can respond to suffering, but that's not primarily what I'm after, is we're really thinking about what is God doing? Why do we go through suffering as God's people? What is he doing in the midst of it? Remember, in the first session, we made the important point that our greatest need in this life is not to be rescued or delivered from temporal suffering. That's not our greatest need. Our greatest need is to be rescued from our sin. And God has met that need. He has met it fully in the Lord Jesus Christ. Second session, we considered how God uses suffering in our lives to what? Prove and sustain the genuineness of our faith. Last week, we saw how God uses suffering to expose sin in our lives. And tonight, we want to think a little bit about how God uses suffering in our lives to enlarge our view of himself, to give us a deeper, greater, more comprehensive understanding of who God is, a more intimate understanding of who he is. Now, you see there in your notes, that was the review. The next heading there is righteous suffering. Um, tonight, we are going to think a little bit more narrowly. So my definition from last week is getting narrowed down to a particular type of suffering that we're going to refer to as righteous suffering, or you could also refer to it as innocent suffering or undeserved suffering. Uh, righteous suffering is really suffering that we encounter because we choose to do the right thing. It's suffering that we encounter in the will of God, in pleasing God. Because we obey God. It's the opposite, you could say, of unrighteous suffering. Unrighteous suffering is suffering for doing the wrong thing. Righteous suffering is suffering for doing the right thing. Innocent suffering is a little bit different, but it overlaps in this sense in that both are considered to be undeserved. This is something that we don't deserve. We, we haven't earned it. Righteous suffering often appears senseless to us. That is, it seems to have no purpose to it. It's suffering that appears unjust or not fair. It seems incommensurate with what we believe we really deserve. And so it's harder for us to grasp this kind of suffering and the purposes 
of God in it. Several months ago, it was the day actually that I was working on this particular session for this Monday night meeting. It was this summer. I met a woman who I'm going to call Jane just to protect her privacy. She told me that I could share the story. And so I thought, well, I'm going to share this story on this night because it was the day that I was working on this session. She had come to the school here to uh, enjoy our refuge ministry, which is um, a, a ministry that allows people in ministry to come and spend a few days apart and just be refreshed and uh, seek the Lord. And she had come to lunch. And in the summers, we all eat lunch. All the staff and students who are there during the summer, we all eat around one big table. There's not too many of us during the summer. And so we were all there and she joined us and we were just chatting chatting about this and that. And somebody asked me, oh, Mr. Grow, what were you doing this morning? I was like, well, actually, I was working on Monday night meeting sessions. Oh, okay. Well, what are you going to do your Monday night meeting sessions on? Well, God's purposes in suffering. And her ears perked up. I mean, she just, boom. And she asked me a question. She said, are you going to approach suffering from the inside or from the outside? Oh, it was kind of an interesting question to ask. And I wasn't entirely sure I understood what she meant, although I thought I did. But I asked her, well, what do you mean by that? And those of you who were there, she just opened up. Just floods came out of her. She had been experiencing deep, deep suffering. She had just recently, a few months ago, lost her college-age son. Drunk driver hit him, killed him. Just a few months, and she was still in the throes of that grief. Before that, she had her husband had left her. She had remarried. A few months after she was remarried, her 13-year-old daughter had died of leukemia. So here's a woman who had lost her husband, Walked out on her. 13-year-old daughter died to leukemia. A few years later, college-age son killed. And she was, you know, what do you say? She was obviously in the throes of grief right there as she was pouring this out. And I remember her saying this. She said, I, I, I fight every minute, no, every second not to be bitter at God. Not to be bitter and angry at that driver who killed my son. Why was she struggling so much? Well, there's a lot of reasons why she was suffering. But one of the reasons was that it seems over the top. It seems incommensurate with what she deserves. It doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. Why, God? I mean, understand suffering. Understand we're going to go through hardship in this life. Understand, you know, there's going to be some difficulties. But, but this, this extreme, there seems to be no justification for it. It doesn't seem to be fair. And what's not fair is not right. And I believe we... Many people who struggle with suffering like this on a large scale, I think sometimes we can suffer with this kind of suffering 
we can struggle with this kind of suffering on a smaller scale. Maybe with a whole bunch of smaller trials that add up and seem pointless, undeserved. And the suffering leaves us perplexed, confused. How do we make sense of it? And it's in order to answer this question that we're going to turn to the story of Job. If you turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament, it's the book right before Psalms. And Job seeks to answer some of these questions that we've just raised. Job is a big book, lengthy book. But we're going to attempt to summarize the story and then draw some lessons from the story. I realize there's a whole lot that we could draw out of the book of Job. So I'm going to try to stay focused tonight. And I'm not going to be comprehensive uh, with all that we can learn from the book. Right from the get-go, I want to acknowledge that I'm heavily indebted to a chapter in D.A. Carson's book on suffering where he goes through the story of Job. And really, actually, I'm using his basic outline of the structure. I'm also indebted to Tim Keller's book on suffering. I'm just I've drawn from a few of these books on suffering uh, tonight. So Job, Job chapter 1, and you see there your survey of Job or in the introduction, and the story begins by declaring that Job was a righteous man. Chapter 1, verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. So we're introduced to Job. Job is clearly declared to be a righteous man, an upright man, a godly man. And then what follows is we're given a sneak peek into information that's not available to Job and his suffering. And that's important that we keep that in mind. That we know as we read through the story and as we hear about what, how Job responds, we're privy to information that he's not privy to. And that's, that's important. Um, Satan presents himself to uh, before God. So we kind of move from a spotlight on Job to a spotlight to God in heaven. Satan comes before God and God actually raises the point. He says, have, have you considered my servant Job? In fact, God says something quite incredible in verse 8. He says, there's no one like him on the earth. You know, there's no more godly man on the entire face of the earth than Job. Job later, I'm sure, didn't appreciate the attention. <laughs> but here, here it is. God is singling Job out. And Satan is an accuser. That's who he is. Satan is an accuser. And so he immediately accuses Job of serving God out of self-interest. Well, I know why Job serves you. I know why he's so faithful and so godly. It's because you bless him. Look at all he's got. Look at how wealthy he is. Take it away and he'll curse you to your face. He'll curse you. And that's really the question behind the whole book of Job. The question is, will Job, will Job, will Job curse God and die? <laughs> will Job do it? Does Job seek God only because God blesses him? Or is there something more to his faith in God? Well, God knows that there's something more, and he wants to prove it to Satan, and so he gives Satan authority to touch Job's life, his property, and, and so forth. Now, you have to be aware, when, when the suffering hits Job, it comes to him very suddenly. It comes out of the blue. It just 
he, he doesn't realize all this has taken place, right? It just comes as a shock. There's two waves of suffering. The first wave, Satan destroys all of Job's children, kills them all. Big tornado, whirlwind storm, building falls on them. They're all dead. All his property is taken away in one day. You got these marauding bands of warriors and they come and they destroy all his property and steal it and take it away. And Job's response is, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, Satan's like, well, yeah, but if you touch his own life, skin for skin, right? You touch his own life, then it's over. He'll curse you. Okay, go for it. And the second wave, Satan touches Job's body, gives him painful boils. And I can only imagine that Satan would have chosen the most painful thing he could think of to give Job. And Satan incites Job's wife to tell Job, just curse God and die. Just give up. Now note again that if Satan can get Job to curse God, he wins. He's won the wager. But how does Job respond? Chapter 2, verse 10. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not also adversity? And then we're told in all of this, he did not sin. He did not sin. Now, just right here, before we go any further, we learn a few things. One, we learn that God is absolutely sovereign over suffering, over evil, over Satan. He's absolutely sovereign. Satan cannot inflict calamity, cannot inflict harm on Job apart from God's giving him his authority, giving him permission. We also learn that there is such a thing as righteous or innocent suffering. That's important. It's very, very clear. In fact, God himself um, is communicating that there is nothing in Job's life that causes him to deserve what he's going through. Nothing. He's, he's godly. He's righteous. He's, he's done everything right. All that Job gets from God is actually praise. It's praise. Yet Job is going through excruciating suffering. Job is actually suffering, if you think about it, for having done the right thing. Right? He's actually suffering because he's lived for God. Because he trusts God. And he's caught God's attention. And this raises a question that I've mused on, and I'm kind of going a little bit on a rabbit trail, but I know I'm doing it, and I'm doing it purposefully. Is Job's suffering persecution? Persecution. Now, when we think of the word persecution, we generally think of another human being harming us or being opposed to us because of our faith in Jesus Christ. You're with me? He's not being attacked by another human being. In fact, think about what he's experienced. He's experienced natural calamity, a whirlwind. He's experienced um, war, not really war, marauding bands, so theft. Let's just call it theft. And he's experienced physical illness. Right? Are you with me? It's very, very, very interesting. But behind the scenes, there's a devil who is persecuting him because of his faith in God. 
And that raises a very interesting possibility, right? Interesting, it, it, it opens a category in Scripture that is possible. Job, Job lays it out right here. It's possible to be experiencing physical illness because of your faith in God. Are you, you with me? It raises it. Natural calamity. Yeah, it, it may just seem like a natural freak storm that destroyed my home, but it may be, there may be more behind the scenes. Job, Job alerts us to that. Suffering is an opportunity for us to demonstrate to Satan and the forces of darkness that we love God and trust him regardless of the circumstance he places in our lives. This is very interesting because in Ephesians, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of still on this sidetrack, in Ephesians, Paul says that one of God's eternal purposes is that the church, God's people, would make known the manifold wisdom of God to principalities and powers, to spiritual forces of darkness. That's very interesting, isn't it? And when we refuse to curse God and die, when we persevere in our trust in God, regardless of the calamity that we face in this life, we are proving, we're giving evidence that God has broken Satan's power over us through the cross of Jesus Christ. We don't love God. We don't trust God because he gives us toys, because he blesses our lives, because he gives us good health. No, we love God. Why? Because he first loved us. It goes much deeper. Satan doesn't understand that. But you have an opportunity in your suffering to declare to unseen forces of darkness that you love God, that you trust God. Now, that's a side purpose that we might not get into in this series, so I just snuck it in there. Okay. But now we go back to Job. Okay, back to Job. Job chapter 3. From chapters 3 to 31... We have Job and his three miserable comforters. This is the longest part of the book. And it records the interplay between Job and three of his friends as they each kind of give these long speeches. I'm going to just summarize Job's speeches and then the friends' speeches because they're all saying the same thing, the three friends. Job's speeches are characterized by three things. One, lamentation. Job freely and honestly voices his pain, his despair, and his grief and his suffering. He starts out like that, chapter 3. Look at verse 3, chapter 3, verse 3. Let the day perish on which I was to be born. And the night which said, a boy is conceived, may that day be darkness. Let not God above care for it, nor light shine on it. In other words, he's saying it would have been better if I would never been born. And at that point, he's in the throes of grief. Does that make sense? He's lamenting. And you see that all through his speeches at various times. Secondly, you see self-vindication. Job affirms over and over again his own innocence, his own righteousness. I've done nothing to justify such suffering. And you'll see in a minute why he so adamantly Seeks to vindicate himself. Look at Job 7. You're going to have to turn in your Bibles a little bit tonight. Job 7, verse 20. You'll see some of that vindication here in in verse 20. Job says, have I sinned? He's 
He's speaking to God directly. Have I sinned? You know, that's pretty bold to God. Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watchers of men? Why have you set me as your target so that I'm a burden to myself? Look at chapter 23. I'm going to have to jump ahead here. Chapter 23, verse 11. You'll see here again more vindication where Job is proving that he's innocent. 23.11, my foot has held fast to his path. I have kept his way, not turned aside. I have not departed from the commands of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. I've obeyed. I've, I've kept to God's word. And then the third thing that permeates Job's speeches is this cry for an explanation. God, answer me. I want answers. Speak to me. Tell me why you're doing this. Because it makes no sense to me. Chapter 10, verse 2. Let me know why you contend with me, God. Let me know. Show me. Now, his friends are also speaking, and they're interspersed. It's three friends. And they, yeah, I've got three things here as well that characterize their speeches. The first thing that characterizes it is overly simplistic, harsh theology. There it is. You have it in your notes, right? Overly simplistic, harsh theology. It goes kind of something like this. God is just. And they start off pretty well. Okay, God is just. Amen. Yes, God is just. God blesses the righteous. He punishes the wicked. Okay. The end. <laughs> it's over and done. God is just. He blesses the righteous. He punishes the wicked. The end. If you are suffering, clearly God is punishing you, which proves that you are wicked. Therefore, you kind of need to repent. There's something in your life that you're not telling us, and that's why you're going through all that you're going through you're suffering, you've goofed up somewhere, and you need to be honest about it. Look at how that plays out, Job 4, so we'll go back a little bit, Job 4, 7 and 8, and you'll see this kind of, um, this, this kind of logic at play here, Job 4, verse 7, remember now, says Eliphaz, one of his friends, whoever perished being innocent, come on, Job, or where were the upright destroyed? According to what I've seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. You plow sin, you will reap sin. You know, you will reap trouble. There's the, the logic. Well, that leads to the second point for Job's friends. Harsh theology leads to, Job, you need to confess your sins and be restored. Like, that's the only way forward. You need to confess, what did you do? You must have done something pretty bad because this is pretty bad. So it must, you know, let's, let's come out with it. If you just own up to your sin, God will relent. Look at Job 8. Job 8, 5 and 6. Job 8, 5. If you would seek God and implore the compassion of the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, surely now he would rouse himself for you and restore your righteous estate. If you just cry out for mercy, if you just confess your sin and start doing what's right, then God will start to bless you. Sure, surely he will raise, rouse himself. 
to bless you. Stop being so hard-hearted. But in and all, they have they show very little compassion. There's very little compassion from these three friends. In fact, in chapter 16, verse 2, which is where you get miserable comforters, um, that's how Job calls them. You sorry bunch of comforters. <laughs> you miserable comforters. And then, Job is an interesting book. There's quite a bit of sarcasm in the book. Um, there's actually even some holy sarcasm. Mean, God even uses sarcasm. We'll see that in a minute. Um, but but Job here, chapter 16, verse 2, he he says, after he says, you bunch of sorry counselors, he says, you know, I could speak just like you if I were in your place, you know. I, I could strengthen you with my mouth. You hear the sarcasm, the dripping sarcasm? I could, I, I could use my lips to lessen your pain. And what he's communicating is, you've used your lips to burden me more, to increase my pain, not lessen it. Well, that takes us all the way to chapter 32. You're with me so far? We have to work through the story and then we can apply it. Job 32. At this point, the three friends are burned out. <laughs> you know, we don't know what else to say. We said the same mantra about 50 million times and the guy's not repenting. So, you know, where do we go? And so they get quiet and another man pipes up. His name is Elihu. He's a fourth person who's present. He's younger, and so he's waited patiently, letting his elders speak first. But now he gives a long speech. It's interesting to note that at the end of the story, Elihu is neither praised nor condemned. The three friends are condemned. God, at the end of the book, says, you three guys spoke what was wrong. <laughs> you did not speak what was right about me. In fact, you need to go sacrifice, and you need to ask Job to pray for you, or else you're really going to get it yourself. Okay, so they're, they're in trouble at the end. But Elihu, nothing is said of him. And Elihu does not use the arguments that his three friends make. He begins by rebuking Job for questioning God's justice. Now, the, the central part of what Elihu says is in chapter 33. So if you turn to 33, verse 8, I want to read a section here. And I want you to hear what the, the point that Elihu is trying to make here in this section. Verse 8, 33, 8. Surely you have spoken in my hearing, and I've heard the sound of your words. And now he's going to quote Job. Here's what I'm hearing from you, Job. I am pure without transgression. (laughs) I am innocent. And there is no guilt in me. Behold, he, God, invents pretexts against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks. He watches all my paths. In other words, what Elias is saying is, If I listen to you correctly, Job, what I'm hearing is, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. And God is out to get me. God is out to get me. Right? And then look at what Elihu says in verse 12. Behold, let me tell you, Job, you are not right in this. (laughs) There's something wrong here, Job. There's something wrong. And then he says, for God is greater than man. Elihu's point is, at the end of the day, God is right. God has to be right. And God's greater than you. 
Job says Elihu, even if we don't understand all his ways, God is greater than man. We don't have to understand what God is doing to trust him. Now, Job needs to be careful here of turning his unrighteous, his righteous suffering into unrighteous suffering. And Elihu provides some real insight here. In fact, if you read the whole section, you'll realize that his arguments mirror very closely the arguments that God himself will make in the very next section. Let's turn now to Job 38. Because in Job 38, God steps in. Job 38, in verse 1, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Translated, Job, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're saying. Your words are leading to less light, not more light. Less understanding, not more understanding. Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. I have an acquaintance who likes to put it this way. Now put your big boy pants on, Job. You've been asking a few questions. I've got a few to ask you. It's very interesting, isn't it? Strong. Strong, isn't it? And what follows is question after question after question Reminding Job of all the things he doesn't know and of all the things he cannot do. Look, look, look at verse 4. And here's some of the sarcasm that comes in. God says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me since you know everything, since you have understanding. Who set its measurements? Since obviously you know Job. Who stretched the line on it? pretty strong, isn't it? Where were you? And he goes on and on and on and on and on. In other words, uh, let's look at 40, because this is the end of the first speech, God's first speech, 40 verse 2. This is how God kind of wraps up the first speech. Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? (laughs) Who are you, Job? You're a fault finder. Let him who reproves God answer it. Answer me, Job, since you have no problem reproving me, God, answer me. See, in a sense, what God is saying is until you know all that I know and until you can do everything that I do, you have no right to contend with me. You have no right to reprove me. In other words, Job, you're limited. You're limited in knowledge and power. You don't know what you're talking about. Dwight Eisenhower was a five-star general, and he was supreme commander of all Allied forces in Europe in World War II. We're talking about somebody there at the top. A lot of people under him. And he was responsible. He was the mastermind, you might say, behind the invasion of Normandy, D-Day, which was an incredibly complex operation. So humor with me a little bit. This may seem like a silly illustration, but imagine Eisenhower there 
in his room in his office going over the final plans for D-Day with a few other generals. And this little six-year-old child comes in. Mr. Eisenhower, Mr. Eisenhower, what is it? I think your plans are terrible. You know, I think you're dead wrong. I think you're doing the wrong thing. <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> you know? Who are you? You don't even know what's going on. You know? You're six years old. You don't have a clue. It's a little bit like that between God and Job. Job, where were you? Who are you? You don't know what's going on. You don't understand. Well, Job starts to get the picture. Chapter 40, verse 3, his response, his first response is, I'm insignificant, like I'm nothing. You know, who am I to reply to you? You know, he's, he's backing. You can see Job backing up. And God just keeps moving forward. <laughs> you know, keeps backing him back. Second speech, chapter 6. Put on your big boy pants again, Job. I'm going to ask you a few more questions. Look at verse 8. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you cancel my judgment? And this is an important phrase right here. Will you condemn me that you may be justified? To me, that's the crux of the whole book. Will you condemn God in order to make sense of things? You see see what's going on? So that you can be right. Because it's either I'm right or God's right. And clearly I'm right. So God, you must be wrong. Are you going to do this? Condemn God that you may be justified. And again, there's question after question. And in it is this idea of if you can do what I can do, then maybe you can contend with me. But since you are so limited in your power, since you are so limited in your knowledge, What right do you have to question and doubt my rightness in bringing these difficult circumstances into your life? I'm God, and you're not. It's it's strong, isn't it? I am God, and you are not. I am the creator, you're the creature. I am the potter, you're just the clay. You see, in the midst of suffering, I just want to say this, in the midst of suffering, we need a big God. We don't need a little God, a weak God. We need a powerful God, an omnipotent God, a God that surpasses our understanding. There's another more subtle element that's going on in the speeches, in God's speeches that are actually a little bit more tender, but they don't come across so much. But think if there's some merit to this. All the way through the speeches, God's speeches, there is an implication that God is minutely involved in his creation. He, he knows every aspect of his creation. He, he, it's, it's clear that he cares for his creation, that he watches over it, that he observes it, that he delights in it. He, he knows what the ant's doing and the, and the gopher and the, you know, all these animals, the ostrich, and he, he knows his creation. And there is something about if he intimately knows and cares about trees and animals and planets, how much more does he know and care about mankind, the apex of his creation? We we must not overlook the fact that God is actually speaking to Job. He is condescending to reveal himself to Job. He 
And that in itself is incredible. Well, let's look at Job's second response. Chapter 42. Verse 2. Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You, you can do whatever you want, God. He's being humbled. And, and this section is a little bit difficult, so try to follow with me. What Job does is he raises up a question that God put to him. God, you said in verse 3, uh, 42.3, God, you said, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared, um, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? And then this is Job again responding, therefore, I've declared that which I did not understand. Does that make sense? I've talked about things that I don't have no clue about, that I don't know, that are beyond me. I have made assertions in my ignorance. Chapter, uh, verse 4, 42, 4. God, you said to me, hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you will instruct me. And then Job responds, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. I've heard of you, but now I see you. Now I see you. And I repent. What does Job repent of? Job does not repent of a sin he committed that brought about this suffering. Job repents of his pride. He repents of having to have an answer as if it were owed him. He repents of having questioned God's justice. That's what he repents of. You'll note that God never really answered Job's question. God never explained to Job why he did what he did. God doesn't say, oh, oh yeah, Job, sorry about that. I got carried away. I got into this wager with Satan. And I'm sorry it caused you so much grief. No. No. I am God. I am God. You are my creation. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. I do not owe you an explanation. You can trust me. Now the story ends with Job praying for his three friends and God restoring all of Job's fortunes. And the ending of Job reminds us that God does ultimately judge the wicked and he does ultimately reward the righteous. But the story of Job cautions us to apply that truth in a simplistic, sort of instantaneous sort of way. Because there are times in this life where the wicked prosper. And there are times in this life where the righteous experience great suffering. But the ending of Job reminds us that ultimately, whether in this life or in the life to come, God will restore and reward those who trust in him, those who cling to him. So there's the story of Job. I just kind of laid it out. We've walked through it. What do we take away tonight? I want to spend a little bit of time here with what do we take away tonight? Two things, a warning and an encouragement. 
First, a warning. Since we are limited creatures and do not understand all of God's purposes and plans, we have no right, no fundamental right, to question God's justice, God's rightness in the face of calamity. And we must be very, very careful not to accuse God of having done the wrong thing. The the story actually, in some sense, encourages us to lament, to grieve. Job is never reproved for his lamenting, his grieving, even his wrestling. We can speak honestly with God. But there is a line that is drawn between wrestling and lamenting and grieving and accusing God of wrongdoing. There's a line there. God is not our equal. God does not have to make our suffering make sense to us. That's important. God does not have to make our suffering make sense to us. God does not have to satisfy our sense of justice. And perhaps tonight some of us may need to repent in our suffering like Job. Not not necessarily of some big sin that in our lives for which God is punishing us. No, no. But the sin, the attitude that says this isn't fair. You're not just God. I know better than you. See, at the end of the day, we have to bow to God. God is not going to bow to us. We must bow to God. And we might never fully understand why God has allowed some forms of suffering in our lives. Do you realize that? We may never fully understand in this life why God allows some form of suffering. Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, you may have heard of them, were missionaries in Ecuador. They met in Ecuador. They were both single missionaries, and they got married there in 1953. Less than three years after their marriage, in 1956, Elizabeth Elliot's husband, Jim, was speared to death along with four other missionaries as they were seeking to make contact with the Warani tribe. He left behind a little 10-year-old girl, Valerie, And his wife, Elizabeth. And Elizabeth Elliot writes this. And you have part of the quote in your notes. But it begins this way. She writes this. We know that time and again in the history of the Christian church. The blood of martyrs has been at seed. And we're we're tempted to assume a simple equation then. Five men died. This will mean X number of Warani Christians. You know. If a hundred Warani Christians come to Christ. Well that justifies the five men over here who killed in all the grief and pain. Okay, and so, so God, God will let you off the hook. And she says, perhaps so, perhaps not. Perhaps it justifies it, perhaps not. God is God. And then this is where your notes begin. I dethrone him in my heart if I demand that he acts in ways that satisfy my ideas of justice. That's a strong line, isn't it? I dethrone God. If I demand that he act the way I think he ought to act. It's the same spirit that taunted, if thou be the son of God, come down from the cross. There is unbelief. There is even rebellion in the attitude that says, God has no right to do this to five men unless... You see, if we only worship God 
as long as he conforms to our expectations, we're worshiping a God made in our own image. Not the true and living God. And so we need this warning in the midst of righteous and innocent suffering. Be on guard against the proud attitude that accuses God, that demands that he act in ways that satisfy our sense of justice. So that's, that's the negative part. That's the, the warning. And now let's turn to this encouragement. I want to end right here. What did suffering do for Job? What did suffering do for Job? It humbled Job. And in humbling Job, it deepened his view of God. It enlarged his vision of God. In fact, Job in chapter 42, verse 5 says, he he describes the change in his relationship with God from pre-suffering to post-suffering as pre-suffering, I just... It was like I just had heard about you. But now it's like I see you face to face. His understanding of God deepened. And I ask you tonight, do you want to know God? Not just know about him, not just as an acquaintance, but do you really want to know God intimately? One of the ways you can know God intimately is through suffering. Elizabeth Elliot wrote again, the deepest things I have learned in my life have come from the deepest suffering. And out of the deepest waters and the hottest fires have come the deepest things I know about God. Out of the deepest waters and hottest fires have come the deepest things I know about God. And I concur. You see, God had a purpose in Job's suffering, and it wasn't just to win a wager with Satan. He did that, but it was more than that. God wanted Job to know him more fully. God wanted to reveal himself to Job. Realize suffering can free us from wrong conceptions of God. Suffering can free you from worshiping a God made in in your own image. Suffering has a way of smashing our preconceptions of God, just, just crushing them. And in doing so, it liberates us. It frees us to worship God as who he truly is. It frees us. We get to know God. Elizabeth Elliot said, if I I dethrone God when I demand that he acts in ways that satisfy my idea of what is right and fair. And if that's true, if I dethrone him when I demand that he acts in certain ways, then conversely, I enthrone him. You realize that? I enthrone him when I humble myself and worship him when he brings adversity into my life, even when I don't understand it, even when it makes no sense, when it, even when it seems unfair, not right. To trust God when we don't understand what he's doing in our lives is to treat him as God. It's to treat him as God. 
It's to know him as God. And I want to end with this. Why can we trust him? This is a big deal. Why can we trust him in those moments? It's because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Three things. The cross tells us of the ultimate righteous, innocent sufferer. The cross speaks to us of Jesus Christ, who's the ultimate innocent sufferer. He went to the cross on our behalf. Secondly, the cross tells us that God is very deeply concerned about justice. See, we care about justice. God cares about justice. And he proved that he's so concerned about justice that he was willing to pour out his wrath on his son. But the cross also tells us that God loves us more deeply than we can fathom. How does it tell us that? Because Jesus was willing to go there for you and for me. He showed his love. Isn't it interesting that the place where God chose to reveal himself, to make himself known in the most profound way, there's no place you see God better. The place where he does that is the place of greatest suffering. Place of greatest suffering. And so tonight, God has a purpose in our suffering. God has a purpose in our suffering. He wants us to know him. He wants to take us beyond a hearing, I've heard about him, to a deeper, I see you, face to face. Please bow your heads. Again, I think it's, it's helpful just, just to pause. We've heard a lot. Pause and just put your finger on what, what is the Lord saying to you tonight? How has he spoken to you? Father, we we come before you, we humble ourselves before you tonight. And we declare that you are God and we are not. And we ask that you would grant us grace to trust you. Thank you for your, your grace towards us. Thank you that you seek us and you seek to Reveal yourself to us. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.